was in my clinic on Tuesday and one of my long-suffering patients uh, asked me, so why are you here on a Tuesday? Uh, I guess that means you're somewhere else on Friday, my clinic day is Friday. I said to him, yeah, I'm, you know, it's my other, other part of my job. Uh, I'm uh, talking to some doctors about uh, creating pathways to train rural doctors for rural Australia. And he said to me, you know, Doc, I never trust anybody else to breed my cows. He was a dairy farmer. <laughs> I think he got it. This is the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. You've just heard from Emeritus Professor Paul Worley, a clinical and academic rural doctor and the Dean of Medicine at Flinders University. But he's also the first appointed National Rural Health Commissioner, which is why he was speaking at the annual Rural Medicine Australia conference on the Gold Coast. So Francine recently returned from the conference and today she's going to share with us some of the hot button issues facing ACRAM and the Rural Doctors Association. That's right and I guess you've just heard from Professor Wally at the top of the show there in his address and he was talking about his patient who was a dairy farmer and he was saying he'd never let anyone else breed his own cows. Um, you're probably wondering why this animal analogy but it actually became a major theme of the conference it was basically breaking down why should we be training our future rural GPs, the cows in the equation, in the city when we have paddocks and paddocks of rural generalism potential in the regions and that's where we actually need these doctors to work once they're fully trained. So basically training GPs for the bush, in the bush, if you like. Oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> it's a little bit confused by the cows. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was like, is this a rural thing? I not yeah, getting it. <laughs> it's very fitting being the rural medicine conference that we we're using animal analogies. Um, so basically fit for purpose training. And so first, I guess I wanted to actually talk about some of the models in the space that work and others that have been absolute failures. And they talked a little bit about this at the conference. So a bit later in the show, uh, we're talking to Ewan McPhee to chat about why GPs in Australia are becoming a leading light on how to deliver outreach care. So what's a rural health commissioner? Is that a new thing? Yeah, so Professor Paul Worley is actually the first one appointed by the federal government. And I guess to put it simply, they've worked out that to solve these really, really wicked problems facing rural health, we need someone on the ground who is willing to go out and talk to all the different stakeholders, find out what those real nitty gritty problems are and actually bring them back into policy discussion. So as the Rural Health Commissioner, what has Professor Worley observed during his time in the role? So one of the major points that uh, Professor Woolley made in his address to the delegates at the conference was that we're facing drought in a lot of communities in Australia at the moment, as people know. But he actually made a point that drought in a country like Australia, it's not a totally unexpected problem. We can predict that it's going to happen. We don't know when, but we know that it will happen in certain districts that we have. He actually compared this to the problem of having a shortage of rural generalists and GPs in these same regions that are affected by drought. 
the way that he described it is that we often view drought as this binary lens, either we have water or we don't have water. And the exact same thing is often said about this crisis or shortage of GPs. People either have a GP or they don't have a GP. But he said that it's no longer good enough to wait until a town doesn't have a GP anymore. We need to actually admit to ourselves that a shortage of GPs is a natural occurrence that could happen as people age, as people um, no longer go to certain parts of Australia. And so it's not good enough to wait until the end point. We actually need to start thinking uh, years and years in advance. And one of the biggest problems in this area is that we're hitting a crisis point now where the GPs in some areas of Australia they're no longer going to be in practice probably in the next five to 10 years, they're simply going to retire. And that's a massive tipping point because we'll no longer have the training resources available on the ground in some of these communities that actually need to train up their new generation. So I know in the past we've used bonded placements for medical graduates. Um, Why have those failed? Those people just returning to the city after a period of time? Yeah, it's the biggest question, isn't it? Every year we have uh, something in the realm of 3,000 medical graduates out of the medical schools around Australia. And we know that in the city, there's a lot of grads who are actually struggling to find work. So the biggest next question is, well, why aren't they going where they're needed, which is the bush? But obviously it's not working in the past where we just kind of force people, oh, you want a job, you have to go to... um, you know, long reach. What they've actually found is that people who went into bonded placements, they spend the majority of their time actually just trying to get out of the paperwork. You know, it just creates a whole lot of red tape uh, and people have gotten out of these uh, bonded (laughs) placements, but it's just a crushing blow to the system, I guess, because you put a lot of time and money setting up a system such as, you know, bonded placements. And then you have all of these people on the inside who once they sign up, it just trying to backtrack. Um, So what does work then? Yeah, so for many years, as you've just said, Felicity, ACRAM and the RDAA have recognised that they're not working the way that they thought that they would. One of the things that they've found greatly affects a doctor's decision of where they will practice is what they've been exposed to during their training. So often they've found that GPs who maybe grew up and were educated in the city, the way that they get them to have a long, fruitful career out in the bush is if they were exposed to some form of rural generalist training in those formative years in medical school, where doctors are trained greatly, greatly affects where they choose to practice. But despite this realisation, the reality is, is that the majority of medical schools, they're not based in the bush, Uh, They're based in metropolitan areas, which means that, you know, medical students often are really strapped for cash as well. So it's very expensive if you want to, you know, go and have uh, time rotating out through the Northern Territory or Western Australia. Uh, So the best solution that I guess Akram proposes is that we need end-to-end medical training in the bush. At the moment, the country is out there waiting for this trickle out approach where they're just expecting that everyone who trains in the city, you know, some of them, they might want to come out to us. When in reality, we should have this end to end training. And it's actually already happening out of James Cook University in Queensland. So that is the first medical school that is doing end to end training. It means that that is finally a trickle in approach where these students will be trained totally with an outlook that they will be practicing rural medicine Mm. and they 
will be the ones that, oh, they might actually go into the city, but it will be for a very short um, term, um, which at the moment we are very much focused on the opposite. So that school at James Cook University, I have two questions. Where is it based and what sorts of things do they do that are different to the city universities? Yeah, so JCU, as far as I'm aware, they actually have a fair few campuses, but they're all um, in non-metropolitan areas. So I believe they have, you know, one in Townsville, Mackay, Cairns, and I think the Northern Territory as well. Um, How that differs to a regular medical school is that obviously the placements for those students are going to be in areas which are operating, you know, smaller uh, regional and rural hospital systems, which is vastly different from the kind of rotations that you would get locally if you were in a metropolitan area. It's interesting with Queensland having the medical school there because we know that Queensland is already one of the leading examples of outreach care in rural and remote medicine. And Queensland is such an interesting location because the majority of the population lives outside of those metropolitan cities. You know, it's also the birthplace of the Royal Flying Doctors Service out of Longreach. They were the leaders basically of telehealth, just based on their geographical um, health needs. So it will be really interesting to see what happens with those graduates out of our first rural medical school. That makes so much sense, putting these students inside a certain context and then training them and setting their expectations around those kinds of communities and really like showing them why it's such a great opportunity and a great career path. I I can see why students would find that a bit disorientating, like right at the end of their medical education yeah why not do it right at the start (laughs) absolutely and just on a social note yeah socially as well socially you make make all your friends you know a lot of people do meet their partners in medical school so you know so much better meet them in the bush stay in the bush um yeah and have someone else in your life who, who loves that kind of lifestyle so in the rural gp workforce what are some of the gaps in terms of skills yeah there's actually a massive problem in that area and it really comes down to that the funding models at the moment, what they're doing is they're really incentivizing GPs in remote areas uh, to upskill in things like emergency and obstetrics and anesthetics, you know, all the, all the really sexy things in medicine. And that's essentially because when you do those things, when you deliver a baby or you give a general, you're able to bill as a specialist. But obviously this is massively problematic and it's because we are now reaching the tipping point where we actually need GPs who are skilled in aged care, palliative care, mental health, metabolic disease, you know, they're all things that are on the rise and we know that. But at the end of the day, if you upskill in those areas or you have a special interest in those areas, you can only bill a Medicare item 44 for that. So it really doesn't add up if you could um, bill as a specialist for those other training areas. It's interesting that you say that because I know that there are some GPs working in rural and remote areas who have these skills in obstetrics, but they're not able to use those skills anymore. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And in the last few years, we've seen a lot of closures of um, the birthing capacities at some of these rural and remote hospitals. And, you know, in the past, it's very common that, especially, I guess, in Indigenous communities, and it's really important that people can give birth on country. So then if you have these closures, you're having to send these women 
who probably want to give birth on country, uh, you're either airlifting them or you're sending them to more regional centres to give birth or to the closest town that has the capacity. And it's interesting that you bring it up because I actually caught up with Dr John Hall. He is the new president of the RDAA. And congratulations, John, on being elected the new president of the RDAA. Thank you so much. Yeah, look, I'm really looking forward to it. It's um, it's going to be a big couple of years and um, we've got so much work to do, um, but I'm really looking forward to rolling my sleeves up and um, giving it a red-hot go. One of the uh, biggest issues that I'm passionate about is protecting rural birthing. Um, we've seen over 130 rural birthing units close in the last 15 years. And um, that has a significant knock-on effect for country towns. When they lose a birthing service, they also lose often surgical services, they lose um, high-level emergency services. So you often see the whole hospital downgraded in rural towns where they lose an essential service like birthing. So it's been a passion of mine that I've fought for many years in Queensland, but now looking to take that fight federally. And we know that there's many hotspots around the nation where rural maternity services are under threat. Our solution to this is actually producing more doctors with the right skills so that they can staff these units. Because often it's um, difficulty recruiting doctors to these areas that um, leads to the closures. Wow, I really didn't realise the closure of rural birthing centres was causing such a flow-on effect. Yes, actually, and it's a real problem. President of Akram, Dr Ewan McPhee, addressed this briefly in his address to the conference, and he talked about it in the US, where a similar thing has been happening over the last decade, and he coined it an obstetric desert, and, you know, it's causing this massive problem of access to healthcare, especially in some of the poorest areas of the US. And really, we don't want Australia going the same way. So coming up, I'm actually going to uh, bring you the interview where I sit down with Dr. Ewan McPhee at the conference. So that's up next. But first, we're going to bring you a special sponsored interview from Menorini. This interview is with Dr. Ginny Mansberg, a Sydney GP who you might have seen on TV before. So Dr. Ginny Mansberg, thanks for being on the show. No worries. How would you describe, or how would someone know that they've got mild anxiety? Some people are really in touch, or they might have been diagnosed with it before and recognise it, but a lot of people don't recognise it. So I think there are some symptoms that do raise that little red flag. And we all have patients who have vague, non-specific symptoms that they attribute to a medical condition for which they're seeking a diagnosis and treatment in the medical realm, but that are raising our suspicions of being in fact an anxiety disorder or a psychological disorder and the sorts of things we're talking about is muscle tension and that can present as a headache particularly a frontal tight squeezing headache that comes on at the end of the day irritability fatigue which is just ubiquitous in general practice restlessness and insomnia and it's amazing how many fatigued patients don't recognize that insomnia is a really big part of their fatigue um, and they often are not concentrating well uh, they they worry obsessively and they have an unrealistic assessment of their problems so they might sort of present with back pain or problem swallowing or even things like vertigo and have a really disordered view of what is causing those symptoms and then they'll tend to over time start to cope quite poorly so avoidance procrastination and, and just not getting to the heart of the problem and solving problems properly. And that can have implications for their work life and their relationships and patients 
and doctors don't always put that picture together and sort of look at it as an anxiety problem rather than a somatic complaint. Is this something that GPs often miss because patients can sort of minimise it themselves? It can be very easy to miss. We are seeing patients, if we're busy GPs, often for only 10 minutes or sometimes even less, they need to actually walk into our rooms in the first place. The evidence from some of the studies that we have is that as few as 25% of people with generalised anxiety disorder get any kind of treatment at all, which does tell us that these patients are being missed either because they don't present to the doctor or because we doctors are missing it or not giving it the attention that it needs. How common is this kind of mild anxiety? When we look at anxiety altogether, in Australia, and these, these figures are quite alarming, according to Beyond Blue, we are looking at one in three women ever suffering anxiety in their lifetime and one in five men. So in total, one in four Australians will experience anxiety at some point in their lifetime. So that is ridiculously common. That makes it more common than cancer and heart disease and, and all the things that we GPs are so familiar with managing. So when someone comes in and says that this is something they might have and you diagnose it, what's the first line of treatment according to clinical guidelines? So if you are looking at a severe disorder, it really does alter the way you would treat them. But assuming that we're looking at a mild anxiety disorder, we really would not find it appropriate to take on board pharmacological interventions, mainly because medications have side effects and the payoff is not good enough. So we'd be normally looking at lifestyle interventions, psychological therapies, which really do change the prognosis quite a bit. And then you can look at complementary and alternative medicines that are far more appropriate for those patients than going on to a prescribed antidepressant medication. So is there any one main message you would want health practitioners to take away with them about mild anxiety? I think just keeping anxiety in the back of our minds, even when people present with physical complaints, just because we know how common it is and that there is an imperative to treat it and that we GPs are in a really good position to help our patients recognize, understand and manage their own anxiety because the self-empowerment of self-managing it with our help is really important for the prognosis of the patient down the track. You're in a consultation with a patient, you're suspecting anxiety, but they're really quite concerned about a brain tumor as the cause of their headaches, and they haven't really, they're really suspicious that their fatigue is a sign of cancer, for example. How do you transition that patient towards accepting a diagnosis of anxiety? So I think it's really important to validate the patient's somatic complaints and at least validate their fears and, and validate the symptoms that they're having so that they don't feel like you're saying this is all in your head. And what I often say is just something to run up the flagpole here is one thing that could account for all of the symptoms that you're telling me is anxiety. And I see this quite commonly, but I think it's not you know, a bad thing to say, let's do some tests, let me do an examination just to help them feel heard and validated before you zero in on the diagnosis too quickly because they might feel really dismissed and um, uh, not uh, invalidated if that's the way it's done. One less thing to worry about. Yeah. <laughs>Welcome back to the show. Shortly, I'm going to sit down with Dr. Ewan McPhee at the conference and bring you the interview that we did. One of the most interesting things he was talking about in his presidential address, Felicity, is that 
he's actually been traveling the world a lot in the last year and teaching other countries what they maybe could learn from the way that we do rural and remote medicine in Australia. One of the most standout was that he talked to some leaders in Kenya and essentially they had small clinics in their country that were seeing 30,000 patients a day. Wow, that's a lot of patients. Yeah, so many patients and, you know, putting our own problems in perspective. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but even so, you know, the problems that our GPs face every day and in some towns, it's very, very different to the experience that GPs have in metropolitan areas. And in many ways, Akram actually does have a lot to boast about. As a college, they've actually had 100% growth in trainees over the last few years, which is massive. And where GP training is falling every year, as reported by the RECGP, Akram has actually continued to fill their quota for GP training, which is quite remarkable. So what are they doing to be attractive in the age where we feel like we're losing GPs? So one thing that struck me in the president's address uh, to over 1,000 delegates in the room was that the college was actually standing up and saying, you know, we're not perfect and we want you to come up and talk to us. And they really want that to be face to face. You don't have to take it to social media that, you know, there's so many people in the college in the room and um, highly approachable people as well. I guess that's the country spirit that is Akram. And when I say that country spirit, you can really feel it. When I sat down with Ewan for our interview, uh, there were a few registrars walking past and you can just tell he really knows people in the college by name and his members. And that's quite different, I think, from a lot of other medical colleges potentially. And there's a real spirit uh, because everyone is really working to a common goal, which is, you know, how can we achieve the most comprehensive and equitable health access in rural Australia with some of the best trained doctors in the world. And Akram is now leading the charge in terms of representing Australia's primary care on the world stage. That's right. Uh, Ewan McPhee talked a lot about how Akram is actually teaching other nations how to do outreach care and how to do it well. But I think I'll share with you our interview from the conference. So this is Akram president, Dr. Ewan McPhee. So we have a very special guest for the Medical Republic podcast today. I'm joined with Akram President, Dr. Ewan McPhee. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. It's it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And we're here at the RMA conference in the Gold Coast. Uh, Could you maybe tell us a little bit about this year's conference and what the vision is for it? Yes, look, we're at the uh, Joint Rural Doctors Association of Australia, Australian College of World Medicine Conference, and actually... I guess the first thing to say, it's been a fantastic uh, conference. We've had uh, nearly a thousand people, uh, delegates come, and uh, the conversation this year has been really, just really focusing on rural health. Um, Some of the themes that are coming through are really around uh, empowering research in rural communities. We've got some fantastic young uh, researchers, uh, rural generalists who are doing important work um, in uh, looking at communities and problems and health issues in communities, so some fantastic presentations. The other important issues for the college and for this conference is is really explaining to people what college-led training is going to look like. We know that in 2022, the Australian College of Rural Medicine will for the first time have self-determination about how we train our next generation of rural generalists, so young doctors with uh, family medicine skills and an enhanced scope of practice uh, to deliver care to their communities. That's really important and, and, uh, and the college has a vision about how we're going to do that 
Um, so we need to talk about those principles, about how we're going to centre things around our registrars, and we're going to have that really one-on-one -on -one connection with our supervisors, um, and really start to look at how we uh, give people meaningful careers into the future, and that's one sort of the great opportunities of this. And it's quite interesting because so often we talk about that equitable access and how that will lead to you know more patient-centered care but one of the most interesting themes coming through in this conference and just the spirit of the registrars here and even the inclusion of medical students is also a bigger part which is actually individualizing the GP experience and making sure that training matches up uh, with making it an attractive career path for people. I think it's really important that we acknowledge that my generation um, shouldn't be defining how or what training looks like for the next generation. So what uh, the College of Remote Medicine has done is it, it has a future generalist forum with uh, young medical students. It has its registrar forum as well. And we the, the board, the board of the college, takes advice from our medical students. It takes advice from our registrars. Because this is our future, this is the college's future, but this is the future of rural medicine, and we need to listen to them. When I first graduated and went out to uh, the bush, I worked 24-7, 365, and I rarely saw my wife, and I rarely saw my kids. That's just not acceptable anymore. Uh, the, the traditional model of general practice is, is failing right across rural and regional Australia. We need to look at models, and we need to look at systems that will actually be sustainable. And just throwing more money, good after bad, isn't necessarily the way to fix that. So there's some really important conversations, and they're being led by our junior clinicians, uh, and that's important. I was just going to ask you quickly about the memorandum that's being signed with the um, Australian Defence Force. It's quite interesting. I believe it's the first uh, partnership of its kind between a medical college and a government department um, such yeah. as Defence. What could it mean for, I guess, future symbiosis between doctors who might be trained in the Australian Defence Force and equally uh, doctors with ACRIM who might mm. go and do some subspecialty training with the Defence Force? I think uh, what, what, I, what uh, the college has done today is signed a memorandum of understanding with the Australian Defence Force with uh, the Surgeon General herself, Tracy Smart, uh, Air Vice Marshal Tracy Smart. What that meant, and, and what uh, Defence Force doctors say to me is, they wanted a flexible training program that actually delivered um, what they needed, uh, which was you know, family medicine, general practice skills, but also extended enhanced skills in emergency medicine, um, in austere medicine, and, and some, in some ways other things like aerospace medicine or bariatric medicine or uh, emergency anesthesia, uh, uh, emergency uh, medicine itself. So it needed that broad scope uh, of experience, but fundamentally these are doctors that are being trained to be family physicians, to understand things like population health, to understand uh, chronic uh, non-communicable diseases, to understand the importance of community, because these are doctors who will be working in austere environments, but often in emergent situations and having to deal with communities that have been disrupted by war, or famine or disaster. Now this, this uh, is a perfect symbiosis with ACRIM, with the College of Remote Medicine. And what it will mean too is that we will learn from the Defence Forces about what's really important. And we'll be able to really refine our education training program, not only to meet their needs, but to meet the needs of other clinicians 
who we, we want to prepare for the unexpected or we want to prepare for a situation where they need to be able to respond not only to um, emergent situations but also to population health and, and, and family medicine situations. What I've found has been really interesting as, as president of the College of Rural Medicine is that one of the taglines in, in, in what we talk about is the world leaders in rural, me- rural education and medicine. And look, this is a, real, this is a reality. Um, I was in the United States last, uh, last week speaking with um, the uh, Deputy Secretary for Health federally um, talking about their rural health issues and the fact that they have access and equity issues, um, that their maternal and child morbidity and mortality is, is significantly declining because they can't get trained doctors to go to the country. And turning to the College of Remote Medicine to look for, well, how can you help us? And that's America. But I've been to Scandinavia, I've been, I've been working with Scotland, I've been working with Nepal, um, and right across the world. People turning to this college to look at what we've learned, understand some of our expertise and allow us to share with them what we've learned um, and support them in developing their own solutions to their own uh, international problems. It's a, it's a fascinating opportunity as president to actually lead an organisation which has a global reputation um, and uh, to be able to provide innovative solutions for, pop, for populations right around the world. Thank you so much, Dr Ewan McPhee, for joining me on the podcast and for taking a beat out of this very, very busy conference where everyone wants to chat to you. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and thanks for, for chatting. So it sounds like Dr McPhee is really keen to listen to other perspectives and kind of share knowledge. Is that the vibe that you got, Francine? Yeah, absolutely. He's really keen on looking to the next generation for the answers to these wicked problems. And among all of these problems and solutions that I've gone through in the RMA conference, one of the biggest things as well is that we need metropolitan GPs to really support the bush and to make sure that their students know just how important rural medicine can be and just how it can be equally as rewarding as any career in medicine that you can have in the city as well. Uh, Depending on who you talk to, a lot of people say it's even more rewarding because of the scope that you can do. In fact, if we just go back to Dr. John Hall, uh, who you heard from before, the RDAA president. Look, my final message is that rural health is so important. We know that the healthcare outcomes in rural areas are worse than our metro cousins. We know that the bush is underserviced. We know that there's a significant underspending government funding when it comes to per capita spending in our rural communities on health. Um, So it's so important that we as a nation focus on this and do something to fix the problem. And we encourage junior doctors, medical students, and anyone in medical training to have a look at rural medicine as a career, come out and have a go. When you see it, we know you'll love it. Uh, Get involved. Hopefully you'll see that rural medicine could be a really rewarding career and you can get out here and be part of the solution. John, thank you so much and looking forward to see what you achieve over the next two years and I'm sure that we'll be hearing a lot more from you in the advocacy space um, for doctors in the bush. No dramas and thanks for having me. Uh, Well, thank you, Francine, for wrapping up the RMA conference um, for those of us who couldn't be there. um, It sounds like you had a really fantastic time. Uh, It was an absolute pleasure. Next week, we'll be back and we're going to be talking about the topic of why the war on obesity is being waged by skinny people. Yeah, so Felicity, you'll be joined by an epidemiologist, an absolute expert next week. So I'll be taking a break from the podcast, but I can't wait to listen. 
Cool. Catch you next time.